I don't want to go somewhere and have like 70% good everything. Like I'll just get get it right and then I, in the future I can play. Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweller, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. If you've ever wondered what goes into a good coffee, my guest today, Chef Lucy Whitlow, is here to tell you that it's more than just the beans. The challenges with the weather and the rain and what that does to the soil, and then in turn, the product that the cow's gonna produce is pretty parallel. Lucy works a lot with dairy, but for her this really means working a lot with the cows themselves. She turns their produce into delicious cheeses, creams and milk products, balancing the slowness needed to keep cows calm with the fast-paced restaurant industry. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. So, we'd like to talk about you and where you grew up and how your surroundings affected your relationship to food. I grew up in New Zealand. Both of my parents are primary school teachers, which I think has had a massive impact on me becoming so creative. Yeah. Like, they were pretty, they were strict with lots of basics, please, thank you. Like, pretty tough on that sort of stuff. But um, Manners. But in terms of being creative, there were no limitations. So we used to... If we wanted to cook, if we wanted to try something out, if we I had a wall in my room that was dedicated for painting on. We so used, cool. Yeah, we used to paint on all the curtains and glow-in-the-dark paint and stuff like that and dig up the garden and have our own garden spaces. And my mum, being a massive gardener, had a big influence on food and creativity. Natural world as well. I find the same yeah. with my with my work. I had a similar sort of upbringing. My parents were music teachers. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was the same for me as well. It's interesting. When did you make your first cheese? Not until like until I moved to Melbourne. So only like three years ago. Yeah, maybe. Um, a good friend of mine that I was working with at a cereal area. We just got kind of into it. Bought like the Mad Millie kits go home and make it, make some cheese. And it was all laid out, like, really easy for us and stuff. But we, it still took us, like, two hours to try and read the instructions and then break them down as well so we could understand them. Now I want one of those kits. Yeah, no, they're good. They're, good. they're like, yeah, really good starting point. Incredible. Yeah. What ingredients did you need for your first cheese? Uh, milk. Rennet, always. Mm-hmm. Uh they, in the packs, they give you, like, the different cultures, the freeze-dried cultures, which I've steered away from now. I don't use any of those anymore. Just salt, and that's it, pretty much. Time, mainly. Yeah. Yeah, you, you need, need a time. lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, how many, like, hours did your first cheese take you? Um, I think it was we made uh, camembert first. Which, wow, not even cheddar, just straight to camembert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we we're, were like, okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna do this, we're going straight for it. We can pedal backwards, go for yeah. the go for the hardest ones, and then completely and then... stuff it up, and we'll <laughs> learn the most, which yeah. I think like worked pretty well. 
I don't know. We did leave at one stage and go have a couple of beers. So it took us. So we did stuff up the cheese a fair bit. <laughs> and and then we, learned, we, learned, we learned that we can't do that. We can't put the cheese on, put the milk on, put the rent in, go to the pub, have a beer, and then, and come, then come back. back. No. Yeah. So it's an A to Z process, I'm assuming. It's yeah. not like sourdough, is it? Where you just leave it and come back when it's risen. Yeah. Well, you can. Yeah, you can. It's fasc- It's fascinating. Like the more the more I've learnt, there's so many. Yeah, there's so many different ways to make it. More than with bread for me. Really. Yeah. I find the process super super similar to sourdough. Though. So, being a baker, it made a lot of sense to me. Mm. Like. Um, I understand this language and what they're trying to do with mm. with creating essentially a pre-ferment with the milks beforehand to make the milk do this in the next stage. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's the same language. So you can leave it in certain ways depending on how you treat it, but that depends on temperatures and the same as sourdough. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So what is your view of the relationship between food and feelings? Ah, massive. That's number one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think our bodies are machines, firstly. Like, the actual physical body is just a machine and it needs, like, sustenance Mm. to run, just like a car. We need petrol. So food is that unless you have feeling. Like, yeah, I can just go and eat all the things that tick the boxes to make my car go. Yeah. But when there's, it's good or it means something, then yeah. it does more to, you're not just a car. You're, you're feeding your emotions. Yeah. Do you find you give as much to yourself when you cook or is it more like for others and convivial cooking? Or do you, or do you find yourself at home cooking like and sitting down and having like a meal on your own? N- not as much. Yeah, me yeah. too. I'm like, Which I'll one? just boil an egg. <laughs> yeah, I treat yeah I treat myself as more of a car. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that so at, interesting? At home. Yeah. And then I think I seek those feelings out from other Community. places and mm. and and other other restaurants. Yeah. When I can see the feeling being created in the restaurant with someone eating my food, I think that's that's when I get the Fed. same. Uh, yeah, mm. I get fed by seeing the uh, yeah. them being fed emotionally. That's amazing. So, in terms of like your food processes at home versus the restaurant, are that do they mirror each other, or are they very like are they two separate worlds? I think they're pretty separate. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty. Mess- I'm a bit of a. I think it's. I've become probably more of the classic like chef. Just throw something in a pan, yeah, uh, oven. Probably not that tidy at home get it done, get it in you, go to sleep, and then at work, yeah, take a lot more pride with what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the same with me. Everyone thinks I just wear a different piece of jewellery every day yeah. and I wear exactly the same. Sometimes I'll change my earrings, but yeah, it's always the same, even though I've got access to hundreds of pieces. Yeah. So I think it's pretty similar. So chefs obviously play many different roles in their professional lives, from makers to authors to networkers. How do you manage to wear the many faceted chef's hat? I do think that's true, like the different the different hats. I make jokes <laughs> that's at work good. at the perfectly wrong time. And then that breaks the ice, so to speak. Even if it doesn't for other people, it does for me. 
Yeah. So, like, everyone's pretty stressed and, um, mm. f- I don't know, things maybe aren't going too well. And I go up to one of the chefs who's cooking and be like, things panning out all right tonight, Andy? <laughs> and uh, then I laugh, so I'm fine now. And <laughs> then I just walk away. and uh, Leave him with that. Yeah, they all say it's terrible. <laughs> so, so, but I don't really, that's I don't, okay I don't really mind because it's yeah my my coping your coping mechanism is to panic and make jokes yeah what are the biggest challenges you faced working in like a really high stress situation is it other people's stress or your own not being um influenced by other people's stress mm. I think I find the hardest yeah yeah because I definitely have always been someone to absorb mm. other people's feelings. Yeah, and me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so sponging. Find, yeah. Being around that can, yeah, to separate myself and assess the situation and be like, okay, no, it's actually fine. Yeah. This is what's happening. Um, yeah, that's been my biggest challenge and my biggest learning curve. Mm. Um, and as my confidence has grown in... In my skill set, I found it easier to not be as phased by other people's mm. emotions or or stress levels and stuff like that. Um, yeah, because I feel less like ah, maybe yeah, I can assess the situation a little bit better. Yeah, when you're less like rattled by it, yeah. yeah. So I really want to talk about your process for making cheese because I'm so fascinated. Like when I discovered you, I was like, how is this possible? She's yeah. making her own cheese. So can you to start with like break down the comparison between baking and cheese making and then talk us through maybe like step by step making of a cheese of your choice? Okay. So the same as like bread making, you only have a couple of ingredients mm. and a lot of what it is is the way it's the dough or milk has been treated or handled, mm. the temperatures that it go to, the time put in, and the yeasts and bacteria. Mm. Like, all that is pretty parallel. And then once you get to the ageing process, I think that's when it changes Yeah, the difference between baking and um, che- cheese making. Yeah. So, like... The size that you cut your curds, the temperature that you've brought it to will change how strong the curds are or tight the curds are, the amount of rennet you've put in, which is the same as the amount of yeast you've put in Mm. to bread or if you've added butter and it's a cold day. Once you cut them, you've depicted what's going to happen from there on. So the larger you cut your curds, the more uh, water retention um, and the smaller you cut them. So that decides whether it's going to be a soft cheese or a hard cheese. So which one is? So smaller is harder. Okay. So like a, for instance, like a, like a Parmesan or something like that, because it's such a hard cheese and because there's so little liquid in there, you're able to age it for a really long time. This is something else that I find quite similar to baking is I can tell when my curd is ready to cut for there's different ways to like test when your curd is ready to cut but for me I find it similar to um when a cake comes away from the cake tin sides mm-hmm. uh yeah. I want it to still be slightly attached if it's if the curd is like come away 
then that makes it difficult because when you cut it, everything will move around. There's no resistance to the cutting. Um, so that's like another baking parallel that like wow. those little things that you look for to know, yeah, my cake's ready. Uh, it's the same, yeah, super similar in cheese making. Yeah, the, the, it's like a wheel of parmesan is something like 200 litres or 500 litres of milk. Oh but gosh. they cut it all so small that it creates such a hard cheese, cheese yeah. that can be aged for such a long time because of the lack of moisture in it. Mm. A brie or something that had a lot more. Ricotta or something. Yeah, if you age that, mm. which you can do, but it would take on a lot of fu- funk because you're <laughs> it's kind of – it's not rotting, like it's – but it is at the same time. <laughs> at the same time, it's kind yeah. of like. So what about blue cheese then in terms of, that's obviously nothing to do with the size of the curd, but more about the aging process, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. The aging, yeah, the aging process is, um, airflow is yeah. super important with blue because blue is like, with the different moles, it's a game of like, whichever one catches first wins. Mm. So in Penicillin Roquefort, the blue mould, is the, like a really strong mould. So it's always trying to win. And um, there's a lot of it in the air as well. So in the condition with the moisture, mm. just the same as your bread sitting out and it gets in the sun a little bit and then it starts going mouldy, it's exactly the same mould that is in blue cheese. That is so interesting. Yeah. The, so the way that you, you put together your curds allows for airflow mm. and then you may age it for a little bit and you stab it a lot to create more of an airflow and let that blue mould travel through the cheese, which is how you get all those different veins. <gasps> yeah. So you might, you might see like a straight, a straight vein. And that would be a stabbing process. But then all your like all your natural lines and stuff like that, that's just the way that the cheese has been put together. Incredible. Yeah, which is it's cool. So can you talk us through maybe your like step by step, obviously not in great detail, because I'm sure it's incredibly, you know, yeah. involved <laughs> process. But your favorite cheese to make from like A to Z? Um, From A to my mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My favourite at the moment is I'm making an orange rind tom. Just also, just like I've literally been planning while we're talking like a dinner party where I'm like, I need her cheese. So uh, can yeah. I buy directly from you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Incredible. Fine. Like when, um, <laughs> yeah, it'll be awesome when, when we open up the deli. I'm like I'll be able in. to actually like officially sell to people. This is incredible. But otherwise, I just sell to you. Okay, great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> incredible. Um, yeah, the Tom's put all my milk in the pot, mm-hmm. bring it up to like 35 degrees, mm-hmm. which is the same temperature um, as the cow's fourth stomach. My gosh. So you're just like recreating, you're recreating what nature wants to do. Which is amazing. And the reason that the... This is one of my favourite facts. Uh, the reason that the calf does that is... Has this fourth stomach. Is it... The milk goes in there and it uses 
the milk hardens in there. The same has occurred because of an enzyme called rennet, which is the calf. What you recreate it with, yeah. Yeah, but what it does is it sets like a curd in there so that the calf can use it as a energy reserve. Its, its body can keep feeding off this uh, stored nutrition that it's got. Um, but the calf's stomach actually has all these tendons on it that cut the curd. Oh, my so God. So it, like, pulsates, like, sideways, like this, and it cuts the curd because the, the calf can't eat, its body can't eat, like, a whole body pot. A wheel of parmesan. Pot of, <laughs> pot of yeah. curd. So it cuts it into smaller pieces. Wow. Exactly what we're doing. And then the calf can, like, its body can digest this cheese, um, which if you th- think about it also, our babies kind of do the same thing. Like, a baby doesn't throw up milk. It throws up a thicker, more yeah, vis- viscous... Yeah, like, cur- like curdled, it almost looks curdled. Yeah, mm. which is its body just having a reserve. Um, My mind is blown, Lucy. It's exciting, eh? It yeah. Makes so, like, I'm like, how cool that, like, nature knows how to do, all, like, I don't know, we think we're real smart for... Um, making cheese. For making cheese <laughs> and cool and stuff or whatever, but nature's Cows always... Cows like, been doing this forever, guys. Yeah, exactly. But also, it's wild that we recreate that without even necessarily knowing that fact as well. No, yeah. Because how many... Do you think all cheesemakers know that? You're like, yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm not sure about the enzymes. Like, I hope so. Yeah, it's, it's such an a, incredible such a cool, fact. I think a lot of the, um, like, the cheesemakers in Europe would know, like, the old, yeah. that, that make the way that I wish that I could here in Australia. But, yeah, Australia is so limited mm. with the laws. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything has to be very above board and... Like in terms of the safety and I'm yeah. assuming very regulated. But, yeah, over there, they aren't, because they've been doing it for so many, I don't know, hundreds of years. I don't actually know how I would say, old. like, because, I mean, even in, like, Switzerland, there are monks who make cheese in little, like, caves on the sides of mountains and yeah. stuff. So I'm saying I would I would assume thousands, thousands of years. Yeah. yeah. They know that nature knows what to do. Mm. And you don't need to mess around too much. Yeah. Well, that... It, it's all it's all laid out in the right way. Yeah, it is. So you heat it to 35. Yes. And then I've added my cultures, which mm-hmm. is my clabber. It's like I have a little jar of like fermented milk, exactly the same as like having a sourdough mother. Oh, right. Okay. Which I feed. It gets happy. If it goes, sits for too long without being fed again, then it gets angry. And um, so I need to keep looking after it. And feeding it. How long is that process? 12 to 18 hours. And how long do you have to sort of keep your eye on it? Yeah, once a day I need to feed it. Okay. Usually, depending on the temperature. So I add some of that, which is my way of taking it back to as close to a natural cheese making process as I can here without adding the freeze dry cultures. Mm. Yeah. I just use the same one for all the different kinds of cheeses. Because so the blue mould and the white mould, like, the milk already has, the clabber has it to boost what the milk already has in there. Um, wow. Yeah, and then add the rennet. 
make my little happy calf belly, uh, let it set, test my little cake pan situation, and then I cut the curds pretty vigorously uh, into like the size of a little bit smaller than a grain of rice. Yeah. So how do you cut them? Do you have a machinery or do you manually do it? Uh, manually, yeah. Tennis brackets. brackets, yeah, yeah, I've seen them. Just awesome. like string on them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, use those and then it moves into the process of like you need to stir the curds mm. to continue um, releasing whey, the majority of the liquid, and mm. healing them. So you've just cut them. Yeah. So they're a little bit like they're sensitive and they're delicate. So you need to stir them so that that motion, the same as a poached yeah. egg, like when you're stirring it, how it gets that seal yeah. on the outside. And then, yeah, do that for probably like 45 minutes and slowly bring it up to like 55 degrees. Um, and, then, and then my cheese is done and it moves... Uh, because I've added the clabber. What is clabber? It's the, yeah, it's my fermented milk product. Right. Yeah. And ha- and you make that yourself, I'm assuming? Yeah. Okay. Which I actually started from a little piece of sourdough, mother, because the bacteria is so parallel. Apparently you can start it with most things. You basically just need to, like, introduce a bit of bacteria, which I'm not trying to encourage people to do. To do, <laughs> to do <it laughs> Just like, throw anything in. It's yeah. really bad. Um, the same as, like, uh, giving a flu vaccine. Right. You give you give it a little bit of dirty stuff or bacteria in some way, and then all the good bacteria in the milk fights it. Okay, got it. Yeah. So then, okay, so you bring it up to 55 degrees. Yeah. Uh, and then I hoop it, which is like take it out of the pot and add it to my moulds, press it to create my shape and to knit together all the curds nice and tight. And now you need to just let the pH level drop because I added that bacteria. It'll start acidifying. Mm-hmm. So that's the same as, yeah, with your with your bread. Yeah. Like adding a sourdough mother letting it develop, letting it rise, mm. and then at the right point, um, salting it, which will stop that process and essentially, like, cure the cheese in that state. And then you've stopped the first phase of the cheese-making process and then you move into ageing. What's um, one that you could make and serve the quickest? Probably breeze. Okay. Wow. I didn't. I wouldn't have expected that. They, it's probably like I find it the fastest to make because there's no cooking. It's mm. not a cooked curd, but the most challenging aging. Like mm. the toms, the toms, I look after the rinds and just I brush them and make sure that they don't get too hectic. But the the breeze, like you have to give them a lot of attention because um, you yeah. don't want blue mold. Yeah, it's kind of that growing. fuzzy little rind without it being any more than that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So they, but also like five weeks from start to finish and you've got something pretty tasty to eat. So where do you put all the cheese? I have a lot of fridges in my apartment at the moment. 
<laughs> so there's like a constant hum of like <laughs> fridge fridge motors going. Good white noise for yeah, sleep. Yeah. And um a lot at work and like we're just getting ready for opening the deli, so we're we're building it up. Once that's open, there'll be some like purpose built humidity, temperature controlled fridges. Which will be amazing because nothing will be in containers anymore. Yeah. They'll all be like free in their little world. Cheese world. Yeah. I'm excited to visit your deli already. Thanks. (laughs) So when you make cheese, you obviously spend a lot of time in your kitchen and around cows themselves. I mean, traditionally, not you personally. I mean, I'm sure you'd love that, but not really Melbourne CBD kind of (laughs) lifestyle. (laughs) Um, so it's, for example, when teaching baristas about the value of high quality milk and coffee, but what are some of the things you've observed about cows as animals and how does working with cows also increase the quality of milk they produce? I went to, uh, Gippsland Dairy open day. Oh yeah. In that open day situation, it was pretty cool to talk to them about, the different variables mm. and the importance of the soil and the grass. And, I, like, I didn't even, yeah, I didn't think about how important the soil was, which is there, the same as we were talking earlier about, like, if I'm just going to tick the box to fuel my car in terms yeah. of food, um, the same for the cows. Yeah, they need their, like, good quality food and soil. It makes yeah. sense, yeah. Yeah, Um and the the challenges with the weather and the rain and what that does to the soil and then in turn yeah the product that the cows going to produce i'd love like i'd love to be around the animals more it's hopefully when we're in the new site i'll be free to build some relationships yeah which like that would be my dream to like go and have a little meet people and i don't know maybe Mary has two goats and she's got a little bit too much milk to do anything with. So sends it my way and I can have the spot to turn it into some cheese. And then maybe in the store that's called Mary's Cheese. Love that. I don't know, give it back to her as well, some. uh, Yeah, like nice little circle. Yeah, that'd be cool. So if you had to, like, what's your, I just want to know about, like, if you were to put together a little dinner with some of your cheeses, what yeah. you would what you would go for? Yeah, definitely the orange rind. I'm most excited by that because that one makes me happy. It also very much looks like an old lady's handbag. Wow. I'm like, with the, um, like, stitched together p- bits of leather. Oh, like yeah. Little, little squares. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I've seen something similar in, in Paris because I lived there for six years. So yeah. I obviously ate a lot of cheese. Oh, uh, yeah. It was a very northern part of France where they had, they serve you this cheese, which is insanely orange. Yeah. Really intense. When you said that, it brought that to mind because yeah, it's the only cool. cheese that I've ever eaten that was orange. Yeah. So what makes it orange? I use the orange rinds. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like the, instead of, um, cloth binding a cheese like or putting wax on a cheese I take the oranges and cook the skins dry the skins out a little bit and then attach them with lard so so the whole outside is is orange skins but the oils because they're so they've got so many good oils in them the oils like infuse massively 
wow. into the curd. So you do get a fragrant, like, orange note. It's, and is it a is it a cow's milk cheese or goat or? Yeah, cows. Yeah, I've just been, since, since I started, I haven't varied much. I was like, all right, just pick two things mm. and, like, keep doing it for a long time until you fully feel comfortable with it. So I haven't, like, I've, I've dabbled in blues and dabbled in a few other things, but I've really just stuck to Tom's and Breeze and that's it. And which, which I'm happy to do because I don't want to go somewhere and have, like, 70% good everything. Like, I'll just yeah. get, get it right and then I, in the future... Expand a little bit. Yeah. yeah, that's a good approach. Um, so obviously, so that's your favourite one to serve people at the moment. But yeah. can you give us, as our final question, tips for doing like a cheese selection and and a, teas, a cheese tasting? Ooh. I'm always a one hard, one blue, one soft. Yeah. And some honeycomb maybe. Oh, me too. I'm a, I'm a beekeeper, so I always have Are honeycomb. You? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, very cool. I'm. I don't know if you guys have heard about the Varroa mite disaster that's happening. It's like we were the only beekeeping continent in the world that wasn't hit by this mite, which can like just obliterate hives. And now it's in Australia. That's so massive, though, for like for the ecosystem, mm-hmm. not the bees. Yeah. Well, it happened to New Zealand actually, and it took three years for them to get back on their feet really? from it. So yeah, I'm really hoping. Like I've been speaking to my beekeeping teacher, and he said he's hoping that our hives are okay. Yeah. My hive is at my parents' house, which is like five minutes from here. Yeah. But yes, I always have honeycomb on my cheese platters. Yes, delicious. It's the best. You can't go. Yeah, you can't go wrong. Yeah, you cannot yeah. go wrong with honeycomb. Yeah. One thing I do want to serve the cheeses with coming up is clavoches, uh, which uh, um, I baked a lavoche dough over a bowl and then so it looks like a cloche. Oh, nice. <laughs> but um, same to the, like in the same way as the orange round cheese, probably is a massive stitch up for myself in the future. All my toms should really be called Hugo. Uh, <laughs> Because everyone be like, what's that? Yeah, the during the like one of the first lockdowns, I met this gorgeous French man who, and I had a great, I thought I was in a, a movie, like small town Kiwi girl, and like this beautiful French man doing some pottery and drinking wine. And his, <laughs> his um, teaching me, I had lots of, I was just starting to get into cheese, and I had lots of, um, cheese encyclopedias in in my room so he went through one of them and ticked all the good ones and crossed lots he was like he's very french in his doing so he's like no this is no this is terrible yeah yeah. terrible yeah yeah (laughs) um and then he got to times he was like you need to start making these no one does them the way that i want them done and explained that it was like the everyday yeah it's really common it's like comte yeah yeah it's like a and that everyone has a tom in their fridge mm-hmm. in France. Yeah, and, they do. Um, so, so really, I have to credit him for making toms. They'd be called Hugo's. Merci, Hugo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's a nice way to end the interview. Yeah. I could talk about cheese forever. I'm actually, I started to feel a bit hungry. Did you? Yeah. yeah that's good. Yeah. Thanks for getting my 
digestive juices yeah. flowing. <laughs> it's okay. Thanks for coming over. It was great. Uh, no, thanks for having me. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fecho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. What really interests me is relationships between people, between groups of people, between individuals, and how all of these different individual narratives create a tapestry. And it's that tapestry that keeps me in the archives, keeps me researching. Until next time, stay curious.